0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read through my Bible, you know i'm reading along and i i understand or i grasp aspects of it but in all in, in all honesty there's times that i i read and i read and i stop and i go i don't really know what that means i don't really understand now i may have had a good bible teacher or pastor explain it to me but you know, for just reading through it, I I I know that it's true and I receive it as God's word, but I don't really know exactly what it means. And then there are other times when I come to the scripture and it's 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 as though I'm not reading the Bible, the Bible is reading me. I don't know if you've had that experience. I I, I think that's the nature of God's word. But again, there are times that that I wrestle with with truth and, and having been a Christian now for over 45 years there are things that I believe strongly at the beginning that that I still believe, but I hold with a little more of an open hand. Secondary issues, not the essentials of Christianity or the scriptures. But I just don't think I know as much as I knew when I was younger. I think my father would agree with me if he were alive that Danny doesn't know as much as he thought he knew. But I want you to think about this. The title of our Bible study tonight is question question and answer and I always enjoy listening to, you know, these call-in shows where people have these questions, but at least in my estimation of things it seems like there's a series of questions that keep getting asked over and over again. And and I know that many times the listeners to these uh, shows, you know, they listen regularly. And so it it just means that there are certain questions maybe from us, you know, from ministry or from life that people have asking themselves over and over again. And I wonder sometimes if, if we hear somebody else's answer, somebody else's question, and then, you know, whoever it is answering the questions and their answer. And then there are those times when that question is our question. And the answer is maybe a little more important to us. I want you to think about this. In the Old Testament, Solomon gifted his son with a poem containing wisdom in what Solomon describes as best being appreciated in life under the sun. Obviously, I'm speaking of the book of Ecclesiastes. But when he talks about life under the sun, I want you to think of life confined to the boundaries of the human existence. Maybe another way to say that is life lived purely on the horizontal level, uh, underneath the sun, between the sun and the earth. And it is in his older age that Solomon provides, again, these ideas of wisdom. As a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8, there's a cadence. There's a rhythm. Many, many years ago, I used to run. I didn't run far, and I didn't run fast. But I always found running easiest when I had a cadence, when I had a pace. There was a a world-class runner in Fallbrook at the time. Uh, Her name was Melina Glusick, and you would see her running on the side of the road, and and, you know, she would be, like, running up mission, which has a bit of a grade to it. It's up, uphill. And, and, and I'm a plotter, more of a complonk, complonk, cumplunk kind of a guy. And I remember watching her run, and I thought to myself, it seems as though her feet aren't even touching the ground. She's just kind of flying along with her, her little ponytail bouncing up and down. And I remember one time I was coming down Stagecoach uh, past Christ the King Lutheran Church, where there's a creek. And I saw her down the road. And I thought, I'm going to catch her. You know, it was one of those moments of insanity. I didn't have as much oxygen as I probably should have had. And so I picked up the pace. And as I picked up the pace, she grew, she came closer and closer and closer until I could hear the birds in the trees saying, go, Danny, go, Danny, go. And I even picked up the pace even more. I wasn't sprinting. That doesn't... Terminology doesn't exist with me moving. But I got closer and closer to her. And all of a sudden, believe it or not, world-class runner. I passed her. I passed her just like that. Mostly because she was going the opposite direction. (laughs) This poem that I'm going to pull one verse out of has a, a cadence, a stride. Solomon strings or weaves... Together, 28 truth statements about life. 14 of them, or half of them, are positive, upbeat. Some of you guys are upbeat. You're upbeat like one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the afternoon. You're upbeat, you're positive. But on the other side, there are those of us that are negative. And so the other 14 are negative. I want you to understand this about Hebrew poetry it swings like a pendulum with very concise, carefully chosen phrases or terms that balance one another out. And so, and so in, in his poem, it swings to this side and then as far as it goes over here, it stops and it comes back the other direction. That's the idea I want you to have about Solomon's poem. I want you to think about these writings, these sayings structured with the intent of memorization. Assisting one in the retention of God's wisdom. The beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says, For everything there is a season, in a time for every matter under heaven. On Tuesday of this week, yesterday, I sat down at Kaiser Hospital. I, I sat in a hospital room on the fifth floor, Staring at my friend who was unconscious I, I've known him since the 80s When we went to Horizon School of Evangelism together And we were, I was 31 at the time And most of the students were younger and unmarried And so Ron and I just hit it off We were about the same age and same station in life He wasn't married, he was single Would be single even until today And I was just looking at him He's in the last stages of cancer, and I can't say that to you that I've walked with him all the way, but there, I've been keeping in contact with him. Our relationship has been renewed, and, and I thought about when we were young men in Mexico. We spent a month in Mexico doing evangelism, Now, when you hear me say that, don't think I speak Spanish, because I, I don't. I know I'm enough Spanish to find the restroom for you and to order you a burrito, but that's about as far as it goes. But I remember being in Mexico with Ron, and we were early risers, and so we'd find a place to eat, a cup of coffee, some pan dulce, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, uh, it's the food of the gods. But nevertheless, and we, we had this bond, and, and, and he's a very practical man. And, and Ron is, is, is from Wisconsin, and, and his hair is blonde, I mean like really blonde, and and his skin is, is, is very, very, sorry, but just very, very white. And there's times that we would walk into a village for the intent of doing evangelism. And if you're familiar with Mexico and some European countries for that matter, the very center of the community, there's a park. And so it was our habit to, to go into the park. And in the evening, this is where the, the people came out and they socialized and the lovebirds sit on the bench and mom and dad sit, you know, close by to watch what was going on and, and make sure nothing was going on. And, and then, you know, grandmas and little kids were playing and then we would do a drama and the people would come over. And then through the drama, we would preach the gospel and then we would communicate it verbally. And I remembered Ron and his love for people. And and I remember that in some of these communities, they hadn't ever seen a person as white as Ron. They were remote communities, and people would come up and look at him, and and, and although it wasn't very sensitive, they would come over and touch him, and, and, you know, touch his hair, because, you know, they've never seen a person like this before. And Ron was very loving. He he, he would be like a clown, and he would make balloon animals, and all that to say is to everything to everything there is a season and a time and that 's what I was thinking when I was looking at him in the hospital and interacting with his loved ones and the longer we live, we see the wisdom of Solomon. I, I want to read to you just a, a, a slice of the pie from Ecclesiastes three verse seven. I believe this is as relevant to today as it was so many years ago. Solomon says that there is a time. There is a time to keep silent and a time to speak. We could easily hear this verse, give it a nod, and move on to deeper waters. But it's important to stop and hear wisdom whisper into your ear this evening. Know when to be quiet and understand when it's time to talk. Jesus presses the matter in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. Listen to his words. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word They speak, for by your words you will be justified, that is declared righteous, and by your words you will be condemned. I want you to feel the weight, as I did looking at this, of every careless word. All words will be accounted for at the judgment. I want you to hear tonight silence tap you on the shoulder and say before you speak, speak, but before you speak, think about what you're about to say. Jesus' words serve as a guardrail for all forms of communication, don't they? For our emails, for those of us with our clumsy fingers attempt to text messages, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've kind of gone through a text message with a lot of emotion and only pause. And I think this is wisdom to delete it all and wait for another day. There's great wisdom in allowing emotions to subside. Jesus warns us of what we post on social media. There's a New Testament proverb that comes to mind from James chapter 1 verse 19. It should be on the screen as well. Where James says, know this, my beloved brothers, so he's speaking to Christians. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But Danny, that's only half of the verse. Silence. You're right. Silence has a bookend, doesn't it? There's also a time to speak. Or sometimes speaking is the great need of the moment. Sometimes in the, in, in, in the conversation, you listen, and you listen, and you listen, and there comes a moment, there comes a time. Don't have to worry about it being perfect, where it's your turn to speak. It's your turn to, to, to take what's in here and express it out there. And that's what's needed. Luke records the apostles' defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 verses 19 and 20, it says, But Peter and John answered them. Now, these are the same men that tried and, and, and tried Jesus and were responsible for having him crucified. These are the same men who are in power. These are the same men who have the leverage and the power. And I want you to listen to what, what, what they tell them. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but help witness to the fact of Christ's resurrection. I want you to think about these three things before we get going here. Speaking truth requires courage, conviction, and control. Courage, conviction, and control. Courage because speaking the truth may come at a cost. Sometimes it does, don't kid yourself, sometimes speaking the truth, even in love, has a cost. Secondly, conviction, because the truth that I share must first test me, it must first refine me, it must first deal with me and my heart before I can share it with others. And then lastly, control. Because truth is best, best shared at the, just the right time. Let me read you a, a quote from Tim Keller, again likely to be on your screen. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we really cannot hear it. I want you to think about this too. There were times when Jesus commanded those who he healed, those who he delivered from darkness and evil, those who he healed, there were times that Jesus commanded them to be quiet regarding their healing, regarding their deliverance. In my mind, timing seemed to be, the timing of the event seemed to be the consideration of the not yet. There would come a time, but just not yet. Remember that Mary, for a season, remained quiet about the details of her son's birth. How many times I think Mary would have wanted to justify herself before the community of Nazareth, a family and friends, and say, you know, th- there's this expecting of a child, but there's this miracle, or there's this angel, or there, there's God. And, and yet the scriptures tell us, well, let me read it to you from Luke chapter eight, 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. At the birth of Christ, it says, and all, likely the people of Bethlehem, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. She kept the secret for a season. And we'll talk about it in a little bit. The carrying truth comes with responsibility. We'll see that as the disciples who saw Jesus glorified in the Mount of Transfiguration were told to keep a secret for a while until the resurrection. I want you to remember, too, that when Jesus stood before Pilate in Matthew 27, 14, it says of him, but he gave him, that is, Jesus gave Pilate no answer, not even a single charge. That is, he didn't defend himself. He didn't protect himself. He remained silent. So that the governor was greatly amazed. You imagine how many people came before Pilate and said, these people are lying about me, or this person testified against me wrongly, and yet Jesus remained silent. And even in his silence, he spoke. Even in not acting like every other person that came before Pilate, Jesus spoke. And then he appeared before Herod, Antipas, in Luke chapter 23, verse 9. And so he, Herod, questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Also in the intertestamental period, which represents 400 years, we know it as the period of time from Malachi until the coming of John the Baptist, where God did not speak. There were no no visions, there were no prophets. 400 years of signs. I don't know about you, But four hours is a long time for me. 400 years where God remained silent and the people waited. God would eventually speak through angels to individuals, through angels to the shepherds, eventually through John the Baptist, and then ultimately through the church. God would speak at the right time. So tonight Jesus instructs three of his closest disciples to remain quiet, about what had happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. They ask, the ask, that is his request, represents a stewardship of truth for a period of time. After the resurrection, Jesus would then be glorified to the church. So as we see in verses 9 through 13, Q&A should be on the screen. This is, This is an interaction between Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and the disciples. Questions and answers, questions and answers, back and forth. A command to be silent for a period of time with the information that they receive. Again, a stewardship. And our lives represent in Christianity, in our walk with the Lord, of asking questions. And saying to a particular scripture, I don't understand this. Or to a truth, I don't grasp this. And praying and asking God and coming back to the scripture. And it is through that process that we not only gain an answer, but we ourselves are changed and transformed by the word of God. My friends, this book is unlike any other book you could ever read. So tonight we look at first verses 9 and 10, questions the disciples had about the resurrection. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, this again, this is the Mount of Transfiguration, he charged them. The idea is that he gave the disciples strict orders to tell no one of what they had seen for a period of time until the Son of Man, again, this is is a title Jesus gives to himself from the book of Daniel, had risen from the dead. They didn't understand what they had seen. They didn't understand the resurrection. We'll get into that in a moment. And verse 10 says, so they kept the matter to themselves, but they, were, but they continued to question what the rising from the dead might mean. We'll talk about that in a moment. So I want you to think about this. As suddenly as the transfigure, they go up on the top of the mountain, just the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They go up, they accompany Jesus at his invitation. And while he's praying, he's changed and he's transformed. This is a Jesus who they've watched pray many, many times. This is the Jesus they came to and asked, will you teach us to pray? You know, John uh, the Baptist gave his disciples a prayer to pray. Will you give us to pray? And so Jesus' intimate prayer life with the Father was something that was extremely common to them. But then something happened to him while he was in the presence of God in prayer, that his glory emanated out of him physically. And the disciples were given the honor of watching Jesus transformed. But then as suddenly as Jesus' transformation took place, then it came to an end. Remember, Peter wanted to extend a, let us, let me, let us build a tent, a tent for you and a tent for Moses and a tent for Elijah. His physical appearance immediately returned to its familiar form, or at least the form that they were remembered. The glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God's presence, too, was no more, instantaneously gone. And the voice of God was now silent. Remember, he had spoken to them out of the cloud. However, its message, this is what he said, this is my beloved son, listen or obey him remains instructive to the disciples at that time, but even you and I to this moment. This is my beloved son. As you read about the transfiguration in the pages of Scripture, and as you see what took place, God says to you, this is my son. Obey him. Listen to him. As for Moses and Elijah, some think that, they are, that during the great tribulation that they will be... Uh, the two witnesses from Revelation 11. We'll have to wait and see about that. A lot of discussion about the identity of the two witnesses. So I want you to see three men descend with Jesus to base camp, probing Jesus' reference to the resurrection. They've already been told they understand we're not going to talk about the transfiguration. But Jesus keeps talking about this resurrection. Why? Probably because in the mind of the Jews, there was but one resurrection. You and I tonight would say, well, there's a resurrection of the righteous. There's a resurrection of the unrighteous, the resurrection of the dead. There are those who will be caught up during the rapture, that there are numerous times where the dead are raised. But in the Jewish mind, there was but one general resurrection, one rising from the dead where everyone passes the finish line at the same time and then judgment. And so their minds were being challenged, what they were taught and what they believed was being challenged. And sometimes when you and I read the Scriptures, the nature of the Scriptures is to challenge us. It's to, it's, to, it's to mess with us a little bit. You know one of those people that are a stinker when you're assembling a jigsaw puzzle and they take a couple of pieces and they put them in their pocket. They're messing with you. Yeah, they're... They're taking their finger and putting in your cornflakes and messing it around a little bit. The scriptures will mess with you. And it's a good thing. It will draw us to seek wisdom. The disciples believed in a resurrection that would also take place at the end of the age. And in their minds, Jesus was about to establish his kingdom. And so... More than one resurrection didn't make sense. Resurrection coming at this time didn't make sense. And they were wrestling, as you and I do, with what Jesus said. So for these men, they'd have to keep quiet for a very long time, or or their understanding of Messiah's coming was off. And that tension was why they were having this discussion. They're trying to make sense of everything that they had seen and heard, which is a lot. And then they had this sobering responsibility to tell no one. Jesus, God in the flesh, is telling them, keep quiet, zip up your lip. Why, Danny? Probably because they didn't know what to say. They didn't have the complete message. They, they would at one time, post-resurrection, they would understand the coming of the Spirit. They would be able to speak to others with knowledge. And maybe sometimes the reason we don't understand and we don't have the whole story is because we, 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 haven't, we haven't in our minds, in our hearts, maybe not come to the knowledge, but maybe experience on some end, in some way. But in time you will. You don't understand tonight. You don't understand today. But in time, you will. That's been the case in my life. And certainly, I haven't arrived. But there have been things that I have believed and come to hold what's maybe a more of an open hand, less uh, not being so, so adamant about, maybe a little more gracious with other Christians and what they believe. But within my heart, I've come to what I believe is truth for me. And I'm not not talking about relativism. I'm just saying that the the scriptures, the scriptures work in our hearts and our minds as we see the disciples moving through this. In, In our next section, verses 11 through 13, Jesus fields questions about Elijah, leading to the fact that John the Baptist was Elijah. Oops, where are you going? Come back. That's why I have this guy here. One of the things that Jews looked to prior to the end of the ages found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Where Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, says, Behold, I send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, or the coming of God, the coming of Messiah. Which would make sense because Elijah, we know, never died. He ascended into heaven He never tasted death. The disciples likely question Jesus about Elijah because they have just seen him on the mountain with Moses. And so this begins the discussion. But for you and I tonight, the end of the age is still future. I love these discussions where I hear people talk about their, you know, their various end time scenarios. And I'm very much a, Uh, A rapture, pre-tribulation rapture guy, but I I still love to hear the discussions. And for you and I, it is still future. Danny, what do you do with these verses? Well, I believe that Jesus wants us to be ready now in case he should return now, to live in such a way that we are prepared, that we are ready for his coming. Billy Graham said, The second coming of Christ will be so revolutionary that it will change every aspect of life on this planet. Christ will reign in righteousness. Disease will be arrested. Death will be modified. War will be abolished. Nature will be changed. And man will live as it was originally intended that he should live. As a matter of fact, the last, second to last verse in the Bible, in the book of Revelation 22, 20, He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen, or so be it. Come, Lord Jesus, was John's words. Let's go ahead and look about questions about the Baptist, John the Baptist, and then we'll be done. And they asked him, so again, this discussion about the, uh, the resurrection, and it says, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The thought of the day, that, end days, the the last days, the thought of that day held by the teachers of the law was that the prophet Elijah would precede Messiah's coming. And this is likely what the disciples believed. And so the disciples are saying, we've seen you glorified. We've seen you with the great prophet. We've seen you with the great leader of Israel. We don't understand why there's this reference, why the scribes believe, why the teachers of the law tell us that Elijah must come first. And Jesus answers their question when he says Elijah certainly is to come first. In Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 These words are from the angel of the Lord. This interesting Luke's details says that he was standing on the right side of the altar of incense within the temple. But these are the words to Zechariah concerning John the Baptist, his soon-to-be son. And of John, he says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. That is, he will bring, he will bring his message, his, his, his message and his person, his message that is verbally communicated will result in people returning to the God of Israel. And he will go before him, that is Messiah, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That is the answer to the disciples' question. John came in the very spirit and the power of Elijah to turn hearts, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And I say amen. John did his job well. Verse 12, Jesus confirms their understanding when he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Matthew 17, verse 13, we have additional information regarding this interaction. It says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. They connected the dots. Remember, I was talking about questions? I have this question, I have this question. I ask God, I ask God, I read the scriptures, I have this question. And we see here in this conversation that God gives the answer. And for you and I, the journey of asking questions is that in time, God will give us the answer. And in the, and in the fullness of time, you and I will be changed and transformed by the interaction. Question and the answer, question and the answer to the question was in a stroll as Jesus with Jesus was fruitful, beneficial, yielding, understanding. Just a couple of more thoughts and we'll be done. The idea of John the Baptist Baptist coming to restore all things. I want you to see John's role in preaching repentance, the voice crying in the wilderness, and baptizing people as a means of transforming the hearts of the people. And so John in obscurity, right? He's not in Jerusalem, wouldn't go to Jerusalem. He's not in Judea. He's out in the wilderness. And he begins to preach... And hundreds of thousands of people come and hear him call them to repentance. This is these are Jews that he's calling. And then he calls them into the waters of the Jordan, which is nothing really to write home about. These muddy waters. He stands and he calls them to come. And the picture is is that as these individuals are coming, they begin to confess their sins. And he takes them and he dunks them into the water for repentance. And one of the interesting things to me is that in order for a a Gentile to be proselytized or to become a Jew, they were baptized. This is what these Jewish people were doing. They were humbling themselves to be baptized. Jews were not, they were not unfamiliar with washing, with washing, but John introduced baptism to the nation of Israel in preparation of Jesus. Almost done, hang with me. I want you to see John's baptizing of Jesus as being instrumental in Christ's first coming. Then I want you to think about John while he was still in his mother's womb, in Elizabeth's womb, and and while she was carrying him. And and when she heard the greeting of Mary, Mary coming, who was also with child, and we guess are about six months apart, that John leaps for joy as a testimony. Even in his mother's womb, he leaps for joy as a testimony to who Jesus is. He worships even in the womb. John would would say of Jesus in John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. And then as Jesus approached John to be baptized in Matthew 3.14, John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, hold on, I'm not done yet. John would then declare, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world of Jesus. Remember the voice that testifies to Jesus, testifies to Jesus then and now. He testifies to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But I also want you to think of John's question to Jesus while John was in prison, while John was incarcerated. Well, John would at times have Herod come down into the depths of the prison and quiz him and, and quiz him and ask him questions. And the reason, my friends, listen, the reason he was in prison was because he spoke to Herod that it is unlawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. And then John began to wonder. And John began to question, just like you do and just like I do, And we have a question, and I close with this question. John sends two of his disciples from prison. He sends them to find Jesus, and he asks them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus, I thought you were coming to set up your kingdom and to drive the Romans out. I thought you came to revive the, religious, the Jewish religious system. I thought you came to speak truth. But I find myself in prison. Jesus, are you the one? Just stop and think about that. This is the one that he, that he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. Listen. And yet he comes to a place in his life where he asks the question. And Jesus honors him with a passage of Scripture that speaks to his greatness within the Old Testament economy of prophets. How much more do you and I, as we're going through the pages of Scripture, or maybe the circumstances of life, in our Q&A, our questions and answers, come to God and say, with all honesty and transparency, maybe even in pain, Jesus, Why? Jesus, how? Jesus, when? Because You see, tonight, my friends, I want to encourage you to continue to seek, continue to ask, and continue to knock. Because in time, in time, answers will come to you through the pages of Scripture, through assurances in your heart that Jesus, that Jesus will give to you himself. And they will be answers that no one can take away. And they will be answers that will hold you. Whether it's a verse or a word of prophecy or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, they will hold you. we know how the story goes, don't we? That one day there would be a party upstairs and there would be loud music and there would be singing. There would be the clamoring of of various instruments, you know, for food and it'd go on and on and on. And then there would be a dance, right? Remember the dance? And then there would be silence. Then the executioner would make his way down the stairs in front of John's cell. And John, John would hold on to the answer. And Jesus told his disciples, you go tell John, the lame walk, the blind see. And for you and I, those are the answers that when we experience something as difficult in life, that we hold on to. And although we don't have the account within the pages of scripture, we know that John entered into eternity with Jesus' words ringing in his ears. My friend, tonight, The disciples had questions. Jesus had answers. My friends, tonight, you have questions. I have. He has answers for us. But those answers, those answers are those things that will resonate within your heart and your mind through the darkest time. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.